0: But uh, what Mary did in preparing the bulletin this week is to put the scripture for the week on a little bookmarker. I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for bookmarkers to mark uh, pages in the Bible or, or whatever. So I thought that was a great idea. Feel free to use these and uh, ever whatever way you want. <laughs> yes, thanks, Mary. Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service now, and as always, we start with prayer, so let's do that now. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of the Bible, where we could, any time, open it up and read from different parts of your historical record here, whether it be the Old Testament and your dealings with uh, ancient Israel, and we can certainly find a lot of meaning for ourselves in those scriptures. But then we turn to the New Testament too and we find out uh, the life of Jesus Christ and how you worked with the church and how you sent the Holy Spirit in such a powerful way to lead and guide the church. And there's certainly food for us to devour in those scriptures as well. So, Holy Spirit, we know that you are the one who does the work of enlightenment. So, we pray that you really open our minds and our hearts to take in what will be said today and what will be what will be preached, and put your special blessing on our communion service as well. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to open our Bibles this morning to First Corinthians chapter eleven, and since we are having communion in just a little bit, uh, we'll find something here that certainly pertains to the communion service, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 27. Uh, This is a book, of course, 1 Corinthians is known as one of the most corrective books in the New Testament, and the reason Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and addressed the subject of the Lord's Supper was because the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. A lot of bad attitudes among the people, a lot of major sins among the people, and even when it came to celebrating the Lord's Supper in their church, they were doing it in completely the wrong way. Uh, Some people were going crazy as far as food is concerned and overeating, not sharing food with poorer members of the congregation. They had wine there, and some people were over-drinking and getting to the point of drunkenness. So Paul was trying to straighten this all out. And if uh, you read a little bit earlier in this chapter, he addresses some of the wrong things they were doing about the Lord's Supper. But we're going to pick it up in verse 27, where he kind of restates some positive things about the Lord's Supper and why we do it and what the meaning of it is. He says in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup... Let me back up to to actually verse 23 here. He says, for I received from the Lord... For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's a positive instruction, and it reminds us all as to why we do this. Now, we have the habit of doing it once a month. Some churches, the Catholic Church for that matter, has the Mass every week, and in that Mass they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some churches do it less frequently, maybe once a year or something like that, I think once a month is a good balance for us. Let me get a (coughs) quick throat lozenge. Thank you, dear. (coughs) Please excuse me as I put this in my mouth. But why do we eat the Lord's Supper? It's a practice. It's a tradition that we have. Certainly, Jesus told us to do it. That, in and of itself, is enough reason to do it. But in all things, I look to like to look a little bit deeper into it. And let's see if we can come up with some reasons today why we celebrate this Lord's Supper. You know, it's called by different names. Some churches call it Eucharist. And Eucharist comes from a Greek word which means giving thanks. And you know, Jesus, before he took the bread and the wine, he gave thanks to God. So it's called Eucharist. And I think that's a good name. Some call it communion. That comes from, again, the Greek. uh, Koinonia means fellowship. So when we take communion, it means we're having fellowship with God and with each other. So that's a good name for it too. In this case, it's called the Lord's Supper, because Jesus instituted it at the Last Supper. So you can call it Eucharist, you can call it Communion, you can call it the Lord's Supper. We'll call it the Lord's Supper here today. But why is it that we take this on a monthly basis? What does it do for me and for you? Sure, God told us to do it, Jesus set the example of doing it, but what's the big deal about it? Let's look a little bit deeper and bring out some things from this particular passage that we just read. First of all, I'll give you actually four points today as to why we eat the Lord's Supper, and that's the the title of the sermon, Why We Eat the Lord's Supper. First of all, Paul here talks about proclaiming. He actually uses the word proclaim here when it talks about eating the Lord's Supper. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the first word to write down is proclaim. When we have this communion service, we're proclaiming something. What is it that we're proclaiming here? Well, we're actually proclaiming the gospel. We're talking about Jesus' death. So we are proclaiming the gospel. And you know what? It's a good thing on a regular basis to proclaim the gospel. We're told to proclaim the gospel to the world. Today we're proclaiming it within this room here to the members and any new people who may come in, you know, from time to time. When we have the communion service, we're proclaiming the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, it's the whole story of Jesus. It's the story of how mankind fell into sin, starting with the first ones, Adam and Eve. And we've been living in sin for millennia. And we brought upon ourselves a death penalty because of our sins. But God the Father, in in His mercy and compassion, decided to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to this world to become one of us, to live a perfect life, without sin and then to die on the cross in a way that he did not deserve so he ended up paying the penalty for our sins his goodness, his death on the cross is attributed to us it is credited to our account so what we need to do is once hearing the gospel to believe it to have faith in Jesus Christ, to proclaim his sacrifice for ourselves personally. Not only did Jesus die on the cross, but he was buried, but then he rose from the dead to show his majesty and his power over death, over Satan, over sin, and also to show us what is going to happen to us eventually how even though we may die physically in this life, the time is coming when we too will be resurrected to new life with a glorified body, just like Jesus was. So as we take these symbols of the bread and wine, we're remembering Jesus' broken body, his shed blood. It's the gospel. So we're proclaiming it. Like I said, first and foremost, we're proclaiming it to ourselves to remind ourselves of who we are and why we are what we are, children of God, through Jesus Christ. It sustains our faith on a regular basis, but we also proclaim it to others to awaken their faith, maybe new people who may come in the door and visit or for whatever reason, who may not be Christians, who may not be followers of Christ yet, The gospel is being proclaimed to them. So that's a good thing, because we're fulfilling one of the jobs God gave the church, the Great Commission, to preach the gospel. So the first thing that is accomplished, the first benefit we get when it comes to having the Lord's Supper, it's to proclaim, to proclaim the gospel. Now, the second thing that he mentioned here, point number two, is to remember Not only are we to proclaim when we have the Lord's Supper, but we're also to remember. And he said this in uh, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we have the Lord's Supper, we're remembering something. It's a recollection of Jesus. What do we remember about Jesus? You know, it's a silly thought. How could we ever forget Jesus? Well, we forget a lot of things in this life, especially as we get older. <laughs> forget where we put our keys and forget where we, you know, laid this down or that down. But what is it specifically that we're to remember about Jesus? Jesus. Well, when we read Jesus' life, we we remember how Jesus sat with the apostles in fellowship. We remember how he allowed himself to be be betrayed. Willingly, he allowed that to happen. We remember uh, him giving thanks to his father who planned out the whole life of Jesus and what he would have to go through and suffer on our behalf. We remember him... uh, sitting down at the Last Supper and breaking the symbol of his body, that is the bread. We remember him pouring out the wine, which would represent his blood, and how he poured out his blood on the cross when he died and sealed the new covenant for us. We remember all those things. And we should remember Jesus' life in intricate detail. And we remember certainly what the the bread and the wine symbolize, the body and blood of Jesus. So these are all things that we're to remember about him and never forget. Because if it wasn't for for Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be who we are, sons and daughters of God himself. He gave us that privilege and that great blessing by merely having faith in him, repenting of our sins and believing in him. And God is magnificent. I mean, what he has provided for us out of his love and mercy and compassion, we should never forget. We should think about these things on a daily basis. So point number one, we're to proclaim when we take the Lord's Supper. Point number two, we're to remember when we take the Lord's Supper. Now, point number three has to do with feasting. We're to feast when we have the Lord's Supper. Turn with me back to John chapter 6 and verse 35. John chapter 6 and verse 35. Remember what Jesus said here. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, we know what hunger and thirst are like. You know, we've gone at times without a meal for whatever reason. So we know what it is to be really hungry to the point that you're thinking about food and anticipating a good meal we also know what it's like to be thirsty. Out in the hot day in the summertime, or sometimes I just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm kind of parched. So I keep a cup of water close by to take a drink in the middle of the night if I have to. But Jesus says here that he's the bread of life, and whoever comes to him shall not hunger... And he who believes in me shall not thirst. Now he's talking about a different kind of hunger and a different kind of thirst. It's not physical, but it's spiritual. And you know what? Before we became Christians, we may not have even realized it, but we were very hungry and very thirsty. When we look out at this unsaved world today, we see a lot of people who, whether they realize it or not, are very hungry, who are literally starving spiritually. And they're thirsty. They're dying of thirst, spiritually speaking. There's a need in their life, and they don't really understand what it takes to fill that need. They're confused. They're suffering in this life. They're making all sorts of mistakes and bad judgments and bad decisions. And they're paying the penalty for these things. And they don't realize that it's Jesus that they need in their life. Jesus is the one who's going to rescue them first and foremost from the the death penalty, but then begin to transform their lives. And only Jesus can do that. You know, counselors can help. Psychiatrists can help sometimes. Doctors can help sometimes. But we're not talking about a physical need. We're talking about a spiritual need, a hunger and a thirst that these people have. So we're feeding our souls by faith on what the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ achieved for us. So in other words, when we go back to the table, you might say, well, you know, there's not a lot of food back there. There's one piece of bread and it's kind of a sourdough bread, uh, not super delectable but it's okay it's kind of tasty and either the wine or the grape juice that's that's not a whole lot to drink there if i was really thirsty no it's feeding your spiritual hunger and your spiritual thirst like i said we're feeding our souls by faith on what the broken body and spilled blood of jesus christ achieved for us and what did it achieve for us forgiveness of sin a sanctified fellowship with the risen Christ. That's what it has given us. And that is food worthy for a feast, a spiritual feast. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. It talks about the spiritual aspect of this. It says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So when we go back to the table, don't look at those elements, the bread and the wine, as just something physical. It's so much more than that as the scripture says here, a participation in the life of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us. It's a celebration, really, is what it is. You know, years and years ago in our denomination, we used to have the Lord's Supper once a year. We thought we were kind of keeping the Passover of the Old Testament, but we weren't really doing that. It was more a communion service. But back in those days, we felt that we had to be kind of forlorn and saddened, and we kind of taught everybody to focus on your sins and all the wrong things that you've done, and it was a a downer. You know, if some of you old-timers remember going to that ceremony, and it would be held at night too, and uh, everybody would be totally quiet. Nobody would fellowship in the regular way because we felt everybody should feel remorse and just kind of focus on that. But that's not what we do today because we realize this Lord's Supper is not a downer by any means. Yeah, we're aware of our sins, but we're also assured of the fact that we're forgiven of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we go back to the table now, it's more of a celebration, Not necessarily that we're slapping each other on the back, but you know what? We probably could. We're rejoicing in the Lord for not anything we've done, but for what he has done for us. So going back to the table should be an uplifting and encouraging thing that we participate in. Because we're reminded of what Jesus has accomplished for us. So it's a time of feasting. And the time is coming in the future when the Bible talks about a great wedding banquet where not just our congregation, but all congregations, risen Christians, even those that go all the way back, not only to uh, the day of Pentecost, but I think we're going to see a lot of Old Testament folks in there who believed in a a Messiah that was coming in the future for them. We kind of look back and celebrate Jesus Christ. I think at that celebration and that wedding feast, we're going to see people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and others who looked forward for Jesus Christ's coming. And they're going to be there to celebrate with us as well. So it's a time of feasting. But that brings us to number four. Not only is it a feast, we're going to have a meal back there, a spiritual meal, but it's a meal that God wants us to taste and savor, to taste and savor the new covenant when we go back there. And that's something to rejoice about and to give thanks for, that we are not. Old Covenant or Old Testament Christians, we are New Covenant, which focuses on the New Testament Christians. Now, there's nothing wrong with the the Old Covenant. It was a fine covenant for its day, but you know what? There were limitations to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant didn't forgive sins. Now, it did temporarily When you lived in Old Testament Israel and you sinned, what you had to do was take an animal to the temple, and the priest would kill it, would shed the blood of that animal, and for that day and for that sin, it was put aside. You were forgiven. But it didn't cover the sin you would commit the next day. Because if you you sinned again, you'd have to go through another sacrifice again, time after time after time after time. Those sins were covered by the animal sacrifices. But what we live under, the new covenant, we look to the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which covers all of our sins. There's no going back to the temple with your little pet lamb or pet goat. We look to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross once for all. His sacrifice is is what the Old Testament animal sacrifices kind of looked forward to, but his sacrifice is so big, so consuming, that it pays the price for all sin for all time. So Jesus, when we go back to the table now to take those elements, he wants us to taste that bread, his body, and to appreciate how much better we have it Than any of the Old Testament patriarchs ever did by keeping the law. Now they were blessed by God for keeping the law. And that's what God gave them how to live. He has given us something different. Because the law for the Old Testament Israelites was written on tablets of stone. Remember when Moses, Mount Sinai, shortly after they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, he went up to the top of the mountain and God wrote the laws with his finger in tablets of stone. And he gave him also other ordinances and rules and regulations as well. Now for us, we don't have to look for tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on it because God has written it in our hearts. Turn with me back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. Beautiful prophecy about our time. And what we would live under, see, we're different from the Old Testament Israelites. We've been given something so much better, and I'm talking about the New Covenant, as compared to the Old Covenant. Notice what uh, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. So here's the prophecy of Jeremiah that God inspired. Jeremiah 31, 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, With the house of Israel, and we are spiritually Israel in that sense, and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. So God's law and the way he wants us to live is now inside of us. And how does that happen? What do we have that entered into us at the time of baptism? Thank you, the Holy Spirit. So instead of, you know, when you're, you're faced with a quandary in your life and you think, well, what do I do? How do I handle this? Where are those 10 commandments? Where is the tablets of stone so I can research this and see what I should do? We don't do that anymore because God has placed his law through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So when we're faced with a decision in life and we're thinking, how do I handle this? The Holy Spirit leads you to understand and to know the right way to handle it. The godly way, according to the the way of life God wants us to live. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. So we kind of know, how shall I say, naturally or inherently how to live. And you know what? When we sin, we know that we sin, don't we? Is anybody confused about that? I'm not. I mean, I've been a Christian long enough. When I do something wrong, and yeah, I slip up from time to time, just like you do. And when I do it, I know it's wrong. You know, somebody confronts you and kind of puts you on the spot and said, well, you know, this is a real screw-up here. Who did this? Did you do this? And none of us wants to take the blame for something like that. And you might find yourself, before you even know it, saying, nope, it wasn't me. I think it was Charlie in the next department. You know, he's the one who, who messed that up. And you think, wow, I just told a lie. You know that you told a lie, don't you? Or maybe you exaggerated something a little too much. To to make yourself look better, when we do that, we know we did it. Or maybe sometime you're you're in a store or something, you might be tempted to, to oh well, you know uh, I don't know if I need to pay for this or not. Or did you ever put something in your cart and then you go to check out and you empty out your cart and you pay for everything and then as you're you're pulling your cart out to the parking lot, you realize oh, there's a little thing in the cart I forgot all about that. <laughs> I forgot to, to put that on the, the, the belt when the woman was checking me out. And you think, if I don't do something about this, that's stealing. Maybe I should go back in, and yeah, I'm going to look like an idiot and say, you know what, I, I found this in my cart, I forgot to pay for it. You know the right thing to do. That's the Holy Spirit in you. You don't have to go look at some tablets of stone to find out what, the, you know, God wrote with his finger on there, do not steal. It's in us. And that's a blessing from God. Another thing about the Old Covenant is it could not justify us. Paul wrote about that in, in, in one of his epistles. That it's called the, the law of death. Why? Because everybody broke it. And everybody, you know, brought death upon themselves under the terms of the Old Covenant. But under the terms of the New Covenant, we have... Forgiveness and justification through Jesus Christ. So he says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. No longer, verse 34, will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So under the terms of the new covenant, we shall know God, not just know the name God or know that somewhere God exists, but we're in a personal relationship with him now under the terms of the new covenant. Because of what Jesus has done for us, he's broken down the wall that separated us from God, and now we don't just know about God, we know God. And if you really open yourself up and put forth the effort, you're going to learn to know him intimately because you're going to talk to him on a regular basis. You're going to read his scripture on a regular basis. You're going to come worship him on a regular basis. And you're in an environment here where you're not afraid to say, I love God. I love you, God. And the more you do that, just like when you met your mate... That relationship grows deeper and deeper and more intimate, and that pleases God. That's what He wants with you, a close, intimate relationship. And furthermore, we'll not only know God and be in relationship with Him, but we're considered His children. And what greater honor and privilege for God to look at us and to be able to call us by name His children. It reminds me of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. He said, you know what you need to do? You need to repent and believe the gospel. Believe in this God. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and you will enter into what he called the times of refreshing. And that's where we're living right now. We're living in the times of refreshing, In other words, before we believed, before we claimed Jesus as our Savior, before we entered into this new covenant with Him, we were not being refreshed. For many of us, our life was pretty miserable. We didn't know God, and I mean really know Him. We weren't worshiping Him. Uh, We were very selfish and self-centered, and our life was full of sin, some of it real heavy stuff that we were into. And compared to that now, we're living a life knowing that all of our sins are forgiven. That's very refreshing. We also know that whenever we do go through troubles in this life, God is with us. He's he's right here with us. So you find yourself in the hospital one day, you know what, even before I get there, the Lord's there with you. You realize that? He's right at your side. And thirdly, another thing that really refreshes us is just knowing our future. Our eternal future is secure. And like I said, you don't have to worry about that, because come judgment time, God does not judge you based on, okay, here's all the good things you did, and here's all the bad things you did, and let's weigh the scale now to see (laughs) if you come up on top. That's not judgment. Judgment is determined by whether you have uh, claimed Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what your judgment is all about. Because, you see, your judgment is not based on your effort. It's based on His effort. And we're assured in God's Word that you have made it. Because it's not based on you. It's based on your Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that refreshing? I find that very refreshing, (laughs) okay? The times of refreshing, you are now living. So don't get discouraged. Focus on who you are because of Jesus Christ, a child of God, and what your life is now, how it has changed for the better, and your eternal life with God. I want to turn to one last passage here in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Kind of an odd scripture in the Bible. We've talked about this before. Maybe a year or two ago, I I quoted this scripture and tried to explain it to you. But based on what we're going to do now, okay, when we go back to that table, spiritually, what are we experiencing? Well, we're proclaiming, we're remembering, we're fasting, uh, feasting rather, but we're also tasting and savoring something. Not only the bread and and the drink But our life now, the times of refreshing that we've entered into, we need to think about that and reflect on that now. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And what does that mean? It means to experience your relationship with him. Nurture it. Help it to grow deeper, just like, with you, like the way you would with your best friend or with your husband or wife. It takes effort to make that marriage work. It takes effort to make a friendship work, and it takes effort on our part to make our relationship with Jesus Christ work. He's already done all he needs to do. Now it's up to us to nurture that relationship, to taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, to experience the Lord. That's what it's saying. Experience your relationship with Him to the fullest. Amen. And now this is part of of how we're going to do that. We'll ask the crew to go back and uh, prepare the table for our communion service, for our Lord's Supper, our Eucharist. And as we do that, we're going to...